Hello from Cybrary, and welcome to the show. If you've been enjoying the Cybrary podcast or 401 Access Denied, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cybrary.it. From all of us at Cybrary, thank you and enjoy the show. Security conference season is back in full swing, and Cyberay is here to bring you all the highlights. In this episode, our senior product manager, Ned Hinman, shares key takeaways from the InfoSecurity Europe conference of 2022. Hear what security leader organizations like ISC2 are saying about strategies for bridging skills gaps, attracting new talent, and approaching cybersecurity as a psychological challenge. Hello, and welcome to the Cybrary Podcast. I'm your host, Will Carlson, Senior Director of Content here at Cybrary, and I have the unique privilege today to be joined by one of my peers and co-workers here at Cybrary, Ned Hinman, Product Manager, who joined the company a good while back now. Um, and Ned's here to join us to talk a little bit about his experience at InfoSecurity Europe 2022. Everybody likely knows in the audience that we're coming up on and in the thick of cybersecurity conference season, having come back from RSA, and I'm sure all have seen some coverage there. InfoSecurity Europe is an interesting conference, and Ned had the privilege of going and seeing all that there was to see in spite of the tube strikes and all the fun going on in the world overseas for us. But Ned, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm excited to, to hear more about InfoSecurity Europe and how, how that went. Yeah. First of all, thanks for th stealing my thunder on the tube strike thing. That was that was going to be the real meat of the the talk. But <laughs> well, you well, feel free to dive in and discuss as much as you want. I'm sure we can riff on that for 15 minutes, and that'll be some phenomenal content here today. <laughs> the, the Cyberary Podcast is now the you know tube labor relations podcast. <laughs> oh, please no! You find another host. <laughs> that won't go well. <laughs> But yeah, no, exactly. Um, I just got back from London, I suppose, a week ago now. But, you know, it's also wedding season. So I've just had a, a crazy jam-packed, you know, week, uh, past two weeks. But yeah, I was very happy to be in London. First of all, of all, I don't know if you can separate the conference from the setting, really. You know, Black Hat is Vegas, right? You can't get away from that point. But uh, London is a place that I really love. I, I spent four months there um, studying abroad in college. Um, so, and this was my first time back since 2019. So like that, that is the entire coloring to, to much of the experience for me is just like that, that joy of being back in that city. Um, although I'll admit a relatively, uh, new area for the, of the city for me, I gather that historically, um, the conference was out by Battersea. So more so on the, uh, West side of London, we were pretty far east at a, a relatively new expo center called Excel, um, largely served by the uh, the Docklands Light Rail portion of the transportation system. Um, the other, you know, transit-related piece here is I also had the pleasure of uh, using the um, the brand new Elizabeth line, which I know this we're talking about information security right now, but like a brand new uh, tube line is just it has to be celebrated. Um, so. <clears throat> That also, uh, I guess, afforded us the opportunity to to be out in this otherwise more remote area. Of course, this also ended up um, biting us a little bit because day one, I felt, was uh, somewhat sparsely attended because of the aforementioned tube strike. Or at least that was the prevailing wisdom that was shared around at all the vendor booths as we were wondering. 
Yeah, that was absolutely going to be one of my questions. I know as we were dipping into RSA and attending and getting out there, it was a very open question about what attendance was going to be like as this was the first year back and you know, largely in person for RSA. Uh, so i curious what attendance was like in light of the, the tube strike and everything else as kind of the conference wore on. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of my... For the life of me, I can never estimate crowds reliably. Like I can say small, medium, large, but as far as tracking that to a specific quantity, can't do it. Um, but, you know, it did feel on day one, it was like maybe like three to one on on um, uh, attendees to vendors. Um, day two was, you know, with, like just kind of using our, our lead count, which I will not reveal, but, you know, as, as a gauge here, we did the, we picked up the vast majority of, of leads on day two. So that was the big one. Day three for any conference always is a little bit, you know, slower, but people were definitely there. People were excited to be there. Uh, you know, vendor wise, all of the usual suspects were there, you know, everyone's pushing hybrid cloud security, XDR, AppSec, everyone's favorite uh, buzzwords. Um, I probably zero trust. <laughs> zero trust. Yes. Um, I probably won't dwell on the vendor side of it too much. This is actually only my second major cybersecurity uh, conference. I've I've done a lot in the higher ed space, but those that serves like a decidedly different side of the market, even if it does intersect with industry. Um, I'm I sure guess there were far less suits at this conference than some of the others that you've attended in the higher ed space. I mean, literal suits, none. And overall, yeah, um, far less suits. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was the usual folks. Uh, Vendor-wise, the one thing that did kind of strike me um, was uh, the presence, or at least compared to uh, Black Hat 2019, which was my last one, uh, the presence of help systems, which I've noticed has been merrily gobbling up a lot of security assets and vendors over the past three years, things like Cobalt Strike, uh, Tripwire, Core Impact. Um, and so they're there as themselves with all of those you know, assets listed on banners, um, as well as I didn't even realize um, they acquired Digital Guardian uh, sometime within the past year, which is a company I've been aware of for a while because one of my close friends spent you know, six years working there. Um, so... Beyond that, you know, Cybrary, as usual, somewhat of the minority faction for training and workforce development. Um, you know, everyone there is pushing software or I guess our closest adjacency is uh, the awareness and compliance space. But, you know, as usual, lots of conversations with uh, with attendees explaining, oh, we're, we're professional development. We're not, you know, security uh, awareness training and, you know, sending them to the guys across the street that had the superhero themed compliance training. <laughs> Um, yeah, no doubt. I, I know you had the opportunity to attend some of the talks um, while you were there. Uh, I'm curious, you know, kind of to hear what some of the highlights were of, of some of the talks you got to to hear and, you know, what some of the themes are, you know, outside of our, our tongue in cheek laughing about some industry buzzwords. But what are some of the recurrent themes that you heard over and over and over again, either through the talks or as people would come by the booth? Yeah, so I was able to attend probably seven or eight talks altogether. Um, on the first few days, it was more of the the tech presentation booth, which was really like kind of vendor promoted stuff, um, which is always like, you know, you kind of have to try to see through the middle. Is this a sales pitch? Is this a broad trend discussion? Um, you know, there's always always a degree of ulterior motive in, in those talks as, you know, as in our own. 
Um, <clears throat> but, you know, things that I heard a lot about shouldn't surprise you. Supply chain, um, uh, Lapsus, of course, came up as like a good case study villain, um, you know, for illustrating what like social engineering chops can get you these days in addition to technical acumen um, in terms of like <laughs> compromising some fairly notable uh, names out in the world. Um, Absolutely. The, the talks that I think I enjoyed most actually came on the tail end of day three, which unsurprisingly was also my opportunity to get away from the booth. Um, so the first one I was able to attend was a panel uh, on boosting SMEs uh, cybersecurity strategy. Um, funny thing, SMEs does not, SME does not mean what you and I usually uh, refer to as a SME. This is, in this case, small to medium enterprise, because let's not forget, we're in the UK. So it's not a business, it's an enterprise. Yeah, so, so SME on our side is a subject matter expert, right? So yeah, yeah that's that's an interesting call out. And then here in the, the US, you often hear SMB instead of yep. SME. So yeah, the, the fun, I, so many acronyms in the space for sure. Oh, yeah. And, and so I thought I was attending the most, you know, relevant possible um, talk for, for our space, you know, how do we make, uh, how do we improve our subject matter experts cybersecurity strategy? Not quite that, but um, when I walked into that one, they were chatting about uh, hiring strategies, which is, of course, something that we're, you know, very preoccupied with. Um, <clears throat> you know, one of the first ones, um, and this is something I've, I, I came up again in the subsequent talks that I attended, and that I've been hearing about for years is, you know, the, the distinction between technical skills and soft skills and the way in which uh, the industry tends to overly prioritize technical skills and where that can come around to bite us. Um, the, the one phrase that I really liked from that talk was, you know, you have to regard technical skills as something that you can convert into a business enabler. It's not technical skills for the sake of technical skills, because if you look at it that way, that gets you into trouble. Um, brings you additional complications where perhaps someone might, you know, over-engineer a, a technical security solution that doesn't actually meet the needs of, of the organization. Yeah, it seems totally obvious, right, that you wouldn't want to spend $100,000 on a mitigation that only saves you from $10,000 of risk. But, you know, I, I agree, I, you know, lots of folks that think cybersecurity should exist for its own benefit, divorce of the business objectives it's out to accomplish, you can get into some of those traps. And it's interesting to me at times how uh, thorny a conversation that can be with a cybersecurity professional that they ultimately exist to empower business objectives and that they're about reducing business risk. And if the business doesn't care, well, that's a different discussion altogether. Exactly. And and so the panelists were kind of drawing from their own experience and, you know, <clears throat> anonymously gesturing to some experiences they've had, you know, in the time working as, you know, CISOs or security directors at an organization where the um, overtly technical skills has actually presented additional complications for achieving uh, business uh, objectives. Um, but from there, um, what I also caught, they, they eventually segued over to... Um, well, back to hiring um, and, and the interview process, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and on the subject of soft skills and, and competencies, um, there was, they went out, of, went out of their way to, I think, emphasize the importance of curiosity and passion. And that was uh, one of the questions that was prompted, uh, they were prompted with um, determining curiosity and passion in a 50-minute interview, um, which is, you know, I think that's broadly true of, 
any role, not just cybersecurity. Th these are the things that employers and, and hiring managers should be caring about. Um, but some of the things that I heard elevated in response to that uh, question were, you know, talking about extracurricular activities, personal projects, curiosity, which I think when that shows up in the security space, it's things like, you know, potentially for a junior role, just hearing that someone like spent a lot of time building their own home network and, and really cares about that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so. world security onion at home, built a SIM in my, my home lab. I think a number of really interesting ways there. Saw an alert come across the system that seemed okay, but I dug into it and found out it was a much larger issue. Yeah. And particularly for junior roles, like, you know, and this, this we're, we're going to go even deeper onto this uh, as I kind of segue to the next talk that I attended. Um, that's an area where, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to find the exact person that you think you want to hire for. The industry has a, a kind of this pernicious uh, tendency to look for people that are overqualified for junior roles and hire unicorns that are in, in short supply. So you if mean, we share SSP is not a valid credential for an entry level cybersecurity role? Who'd have thunk it? Yeah, right. Ver uh, veritable chicken and the egg problem right there. Yeah, completely. Um, An unfortunate one in our space in a lot of cases still. Yep. Um, and another another question that uh, one of the panelists had mentioned there was that they like to ask is, you know, they're looking for a willingness to learn uh, new things. So what is the skill you wish you had? So in many ways, like if you can find someone with the right competencies was was part of their the point they were making. You know, they don't necessarily have to have the technical skills. You can teach the technical skills. And if you have the, you know, the passion and, and the curiosity to, you know, and, and the, you know, the self-awareness to name something that you don't know. Um, that might be relevant to the job, that that in itself is a, a good cause to potentially consider that person as a candidate. Yeah, really interesting, those things that are inherent to a person and who they are and how they're kind of wired. And it is hard. I know having hired a number of folks, it's that's a tough part in the interview process to suss out, but those are the things that are not not quickly changed, right? So somebody that really is curious and wants to look under every rock, they're just geared that way. Um, you can try to foster that and, and make that part of the culture of the team. But if somebody has it, they have it. And if they don't, they may just never have that. I, I think I completely agree. You can train technical skills for somebody that has an aptitude, but those core parts of who we are as a, as a person and what that contributes to the overall whole of the team is much harder both to interview and to, to train and or replace. Interesting. Which of course generates some interesting thoughts for me on the product side. You know, we're we're you know we we spend a lot of time talking about you know skills development here at Cybrary. You know, what but how could you ever do something like competency development? I mean, that's that's a very different product and almost one that's apart from cyber, but still you know, going one layer deeper, kind of driving towards competencies. Um, that's that's a whole other a whole other question, but perhaps a discussion for another day too. Um, so the next talk uh, after that panel was one, um, it was framed as a, like a, a lightning pitch, a lightning talk. Um, <laughs> and it was one by, um, it was initially intended to be um, the advocacy director at IC Squared, but I guess he wasn't able to make it. So their communications director gave it instead. Um, and, and the nice part about that one is it was, it was very short and to the point, um, ha having only 10 minutes to discuss it. Um, but what they opened with was um, the, uh, a preview of the latest ISC squared stats on the workforce gap and uh, current workforce uh, demographics. Mm -hmm. So it's a good thing I was taking notes. Um, I didn't get all of the little details here, but um, 
the the important observation um, that that they made based on their research was uh, the gap in cyber professionals actually dropped during the pandemic. Um, it went from globally, I think, around four million to closer to three million. However, that gap is going back up. So the pandemic, you know, represented a you know a temporary shift as it did in so many things. But you know, to some extent, we are course correcting, and the gap as the gap is wont to do, getting larger again in 2022. Um, yeah. Now, I know that the, the the next talk that you went to also delved into a little bit of the, the pandemic and its effects on our industry as well. Yes, yep. So, I mean, yeah, next one was framed as next generation, next challenges, new opportunities. So more reflections, particularly on the, on the pandemic era, um, you know, cyber crimes, exploitation of the pandemic, and what are some of the associated trends there? Um, you know, these shouldn't surprise you, but you know, the, the words, the, the, the trends that I was hearing about were, were indiscriminate approach, um, less targeted attacks, more ransomware, um, more attributable attacks from, from nation states where nation states, um, sponsored threat actor groups are just getting bolder. Um, you know, they've been able to get away with it, right? You know, that's kind of the theme of the year. If, if you push the limit and, and you, you know, you don't see consequences, then you're going to keep pushing the limit. But of course, the biggest one there was like exploitation of remote work um, and the extent to which it creates more exposure to social engineering. Um, and at that point, it's cybersecurity is increasingly, well, it's always been a blend of technology and, and um, psychology, but it's increasingly a psychological challenge to be solved to reduce that attack surface on, on you know, individuals, humans, right? Yeah, that was a really interesting, you know, as the pandemic was kind of first picking up really steam globally, um, it was really interesting to see the, you know, normally threat actors will have, for example, a phishing campaign that's targeted to a local, a locality or, or a, a, a geographic region because it's, it's germane to that particular section of the world. But all of a sudden we had a consistent topic to cast the net for a global audience that, you know, outside of, you know, maybe language and we could delve into the, why there are typos and, and poor grammar and uh, phishing emails in the first place, which is an interesting topic all in and of itself. But now we've got a global topic that we can talk about that everybody is equally interested in and has a sense of urgency around um, in, in the pandemic, which is an un unfortunate, uh, unfortunate to see that leverage that way. But I, I don't think it was altogether shocking. Right. I mean, you know, you look at something like 24-7 email access and the blurred lines between home and work life. That is an absolute boon to phishing campaigns because, you know, you are no longer clearly delineating the sort of on-off model of at work, not at work. Um, and, you know, if you're prone to answering emails to your boss at maybe a weird hour of the night, because that's just kind of what you've gotten used to, you know, you're going to be that much more susceptible at that, that vague, sleepy hour Um where ordinarily you you know might not have been working, right? Yeah, absolutely. I understand too that part of that talk delved into a little bit of you know you know this concept of of net new attacks versus is this just a reskinning of, of more of the same old stuff we've always seen? I know you mentioned ransomware, and you know for anybody that regularly watches the podcast, you know we've had some folks on and we've talked about ransomware as part of our threat actor campaigns quite a lot, and that it's it's still very much here as a tactic, it's uh, a technique. It's been changing. It's still ransomware, and a lot of the ransomware, um, you know, core code is exactly the same. But it's it's how it's being leveraged is different. So I wonder what um, you know. What was the 
that panel's outlook on, is this just more of the same and we're seeing rehashed or is there anything net new kind of moving in the space? Uh, by and large, the consensus was it's it's a lot of recycled and it's also the same fundamentals that it's always been. It's preying on humans, trust and lack of communication was one of the lines that I think, you know, made an appearance very early on when that question was posed to the panel. Um, the one that I really liked, though, was um, uh, one of the panelists that observed that attackers are actually exploiting vulnerabilities that are older than they are at this point, oh, which is terrifying, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, underscores, you know, if, if you're not dealing with issues that have been around for, you know, 15, 20 years, like those are still very viable attack factors at this point. Hundred percent. I know for our, our our CVE series body of content that we cover here, for those part of that that we cover is breaking CVEs, things that are net new to the space. But we also continue to cover those that are, you know, unfortunately the top exploited vulnerabilities over in number of years. And as always, those top fifteen or twenty five lists are not composed of brand new this year vulnerabilities. Many of them are a year plus old. And these are the things that surface really big. I mean, these are big vulnerabilities, you know, not to pick on anybody in particular, but Confluence seems to be large and in charge on the CVE list year after year. It's just a new vulnerability all the time. And it's, again, no criticism to to Atlassian. It's just, a, it's a big platform. It has a big attack surface. Microsoft's another one. It's yep. both this year and last top lists, according to CISA here in the U.S., covered up with exchange vulnerabilities. Well, I wonder why that would be. It's a big attack surface. A lot of big organizations have exchange. So yeah, I think very much from where I sit to your point, as we're trying to cover these late breaking vulnerabilities, those old ones still have a lot of merit. And I know cybersecurity professionals would like to think that we've battened down all those hatches, but I think the, the evidence shows that that's often not the case. Yeah. Um, there was, I guess I would say there's a, there was a caveat that the panelists were kind of calling out on <clears throat> what is new about this. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of phishing attacks, right? That's, that's not, nothing new there, but, uh, the ways in which, uh, automation allows for larger scale phishing campaigns, um, where you can automate various permutations of the mm -hmm. same phishing emails to, you know, uh, target target different demographics um, and with with seemingly um, increasing granularity, right? So the the takeaway there and the the line that I had jotted down was nothing new, just old attacks turned up to eleven. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I, I think that's that that's absolutely true. Um, unfortunate, but it's the reality that we're in these days. Yep. But. Um, I guess kind of jumping back to the 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 talent side of the conversation because that that ended up being uh, much of the rest of of the panel discussion, both the uh, that ISC squared uh, lightning talk and the next generation next challenges new opportunities talk. Um, <clears throat> so the, the they were actually uh, designed to run side by side, where the one of the panelists um, on on the latter was the guy that gave the talk on the former. Mm -hmm. Um, and that brings us to uh, their other observation, ISC squared, on, on demographics. So answering the question, what do professionals in cyber look like? Um, well, the, the findings that they had shared there were still overwhelmingly male. No surprises there. <laughs> um, so, but to, to the extent of 75-20, which is not mm. good. Um, <clears throat> but uh, additionally, uh, um, age-wise, 40% uh, millennial slash Gen Z those two just getting bucked in and together. Um, 
47% Generation X and uh, boomers coming in at 13%. Um, so, you know, if, if you look at that, it's, well, that's skewing pretty old right there by and large. Um, and it seemed to be a theme that a lot of the experts, you know, CISOs were sitting on these panels, um, the people that handle the hiring by and large um, at, at the, the highest level, uh, struggling to find and appeal to young professionals under the age of 40. Um, and of course, brings us back to classics, like the industry is overwhelming, rely, overwhelmingly reliant on experience, unrealistic job descriptions, five years in CCP. Um, so how do we get past that? Um, well, they ended up ultimately uh, recommending um, some strategies there, uh, one of which is, as I gather, IC Squared is launching a new entry-level cybersecurity certification. Um, so they were definitely plugging that one. Um, oh, but- yeah, the ELCC. I know we've got a member of the content team here at Cyberary who actually was on the pilot of that exam and is working on on coverage of that for some entry-level folks. So some, some great core concept material in that, that certification. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I you know, I, I sound like I'm knocking. Oh, it's a sales pitch, but no, it's it's something that is absolutely necessary, and I applaud them for for releasing that um, lately. But <clears throat> beyond that, um, additional recommendations that came up: uh, diversifying for gender um, mm-hmm. and being more flexible in hiring remote workforces. Obviously, we're seeing that second one come up already, even here at Cybrary. Like we are increasingly, I would say, remote. Um, even if I'm just speaking from my own experience here, being based in the Boston area for a DC company, you in Texas, a DC company. Um, Completely. Uh, unicorns and to stop waiting on them was another recommendation that came up. Um, that should surprise no one. Um, that's the, that is a limited pool is the point, right? Um, they're unicorns for a reason. Um, and then the last one, which I thought was really interesting um, and something that you know, we should continue to discuss here at Cyberary was um, adding creativity to the recruiting process, um, which, you know, I, I think we take an immense interest in um, being, you know, a provider of, of upskilling solutions um, and training materials and, you know, sitting on really two distinct markets, individual learners and, and companies looking to train their teams as well. So how can we get more creative is always a question I think, you know, we should all be asking ourselves. Yeah, it's really an interesting one. And I know one for me, at least personally, that really hits home. So um, I don't think I've shared this with this audience before, just because I haven't, but actually my background originally was in vocal performance. So I, I, I definitely have more of a creative background. And it's been really interesting as the, the content team here within Cyberary has continued to grow, how many of them on, on the team do have some sort of arts or performance background. Um, you know, and not that that's the only way to, to have creativity. It's definitely not. I think um, you can absolutely be my point. Um, you can have a creative background and be as horribly, not horribly, be a really, really technical person. And I think oftentimes we tend to think those things are mutually exclusive. Like, oh, I'm a technologist. I'm not creative. And I would argue very much against that. It's, you know, how do you take what you know? It, it, hackers, by definition, I think are the the idealistic community of that, right? So it's how do I take this thing that was done, designed for this one purpose and use it in a way that it was totally not intended for? I know mm-hmm. to that point, talking recently with Matt Mullins, our adversary emulator who the audience has uh, gotten to see here on the podcast, who's full-time with us at Cyberary now, um, recently got a VR headset. Why? Well, because VR is cool is part of it. The other part of it is he wants to see if he can get in on and, and, and 
get out in front of the bootloader and hack it to do something that it wasn't intended to do. So I, I do think in our space, we have a lot of opportunities for creativity. And I think some of it's just awareness. Some of it is interviewing and hiring for those particular skills and asking questions about people that do want to turn over every rock and pursue every everything until they have a full grasp of it. Be it defense, It's not just hackers that have creativity. It's uh, defensive folks as well. I, I can think of one of our um, defensive SMEs as we were working on this next threat actor campaign. And we're talking about some some work with initial access brokers. And after they've gotten initial access, how do they hand it off to somebody for post-exploitation? What does that really look like? Technologically, how does that work? What's the people end behind that? So you know, again, just to point out from the defensive perspective in cybersecurity, there's, there's room for creativity as well, because I think, <laughs> Ned, you'll agree that the adversaries are absolutely being as creative as they need to be. You know, ransomware. Oh, well, you're not paying the ransom anymore. Well, let me just download all your data and extort you uh, and threaten to, to disclose all that information on the web. So um, I think we have to be equally crafty and creative as well, because the adversaries certainly are being to your point, why do they do the same things that they've always done? Because well, they continue to work. Yet yeah. when they don't, they'll come up with a creative solution and continue to maintain their income. Yep. Yeah. But I do want to poke more at the curiosity question. But you know, first, I, I do have to ask you, given your your mention of the uh, vocal performance background, I know Cyberry the Musical is in the works. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have heard nothing of the sort and have not been asked, probably thankfully, to audition for that. But um, yeah, you know, um, maybe write me into the audition form. So we'll see. I'm curious to know who's actually pinning the thing. I, I, well, I, I have an English degree, and I, of course, am not a cybersecurity practitioner. I, I come to this space by way of higher education and publishing, of all things. But, you know, we should talk to Kevin about that. I think that idea's got legs. <laughs> a side passion project, as it were, right? Yep. But, um, I mean, back on the, on the question of curiosity, um, you know, one of the, the closing prompts um, on, on the last panel was, well, uh, again, attracting new younger people to uh, the industry. And, and one thing that I definitely wanted to make a point of bringing up here with you, because you and I talk about um, frameworks quite often, frameworks mm -hmm. for knowledge, frameworks for skills, all sorts of frameworks. Um, but one of the panelists had observed that we have entirely too many skills-based frameworks um, and that he would be interested in a, a competency-based framework. So my question to you is, what does, what does that look like? Because, I mean, on the surface, it implies to me, you know, uh, tendencies, capabilities, interests that undergird, you know, what makes a good cybersecurity practitioner um, and might exist, you know, kind of as a, as a prereq to some of the skills-based frameworks that we're currently, you know, building content to. I think that's How a really interesting one to me. I know, um, I think it's a logical progression uh, that, honestly, uh, for a developing industry, you know, we, we tend to realize what the most concrete examples of things are first. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you, when you live in a, a market that has a, admittedly a skill gap, whether we want to call it that or a people gap or a hiring gap, or, you know, I know there's, that can be a loaded question for a number of folks and I fully understand why. So terminology aside, when there are more roles vacant than we seem to have qualified people to fill, I think the logical human response is to, well, what skills do we need people to have to fill these roles? Because just putting bodies in a seat for any role is not beneficial, but particularly for cybersecurity, right? So if you take somebody that doesn't have the abilities and skills that they need to perform the job and you put them in a role expecting that they 
are performing the job, you're actually increasing your organization's risk for that person being there, as opposed to knowing that that role is just vacant. So I think, you know, to start, you know, why do we have frameworks like NIST NICE? We're trying to get our hands as an industry around that. We're trying to coalesce around a, a, a certain vocabulary that helps us all uniformly explain that thing and what we're after because it's fractured otherwise. Um, but I think interestingly to the point of the panel that what now? <laughs> like there are certainly capabilities, capacities, uh, you know, things that are core to humans that make them uniquely qualified potentially for this kind of work. So you can train people to do lots of things, but it doesn't mean they're really going to have the undergirdings, as you mentioned, to, to be amazing or awesome at that. Um, again, that's not being critical, but somebody that's really curious, regardless of what role they feel on cybersecurity, is probably going to chase things down differently than somebody that just tends to not care. Um, or not that I don't care, but it's just not geared that way. So I think, you know, my two cents on that is I think it's a logical progression as these frameworks develop um, to go from what do we know, what's concrete, how do we solve that problem, and then get into the more, maybe not esoteric, but the more um, theoretical space of that. Like, okay, great, we, we're training all these people, but we may not be finding success that we really want in that. So is there something more fundamental? And that's, I think... You know, uh, Chloe Mazdagi and I have talked about this a little bit and, and uh, others on the podcast as well. Like, what really makes somebody uniquely qualified to do this and how and where does, to your point earlier, does diversity really fit in um, mm -hmm. to all of this? And I think those competency style frameworks start to answer some of those more fundamental questions. And the last thing I'll say to that is, I think are really, really important, particularly as we start trying to attract people much younger into cybersecurity. And I, what I don't mean is generationally younger, um, the 20-somethings the of today. No, I mean down into fostering interest in this at the earliest ages of you know elementary, secondary, primary school education to help people and young people find how they're geared and what they're interested in. Having three young people in my house, it's something that we definitely spend a fair bit of time thinking about, about I certainly didn't know what I wanted to do when I was 18. I had some ideas, um, but I definitely was geared a certain way. So I take my performance background and end up doing a technical things. How do we help more people figure out that they might be interested in a career in cybersecurity, I think is a really fundamental question to the competency framework argument. Yeah, and on that last one, I mean, it's not just um, attracting interest in, in the youngest elements of, of in children essentially but it's also how do we get to them first because otherwise you know you you end up with groups like lapsus which are you know like i believe the ringleader was, was like what a kid in 16 something like that you know like how do we draw them into the defensive side as opposed to the the offensive side and the criminal element of it too yeah really really interesting so did the did the Panelists have answers to that. I'm hoping that they had a, a framework already in works, and we just need to adopt it, and we're ready to go. They didn't, uh, and oh. I, unfortunately, I don't think the panel dwelled on that particular point or took that particular reading um, of it. But it occurred to me just in discussing it. I mean, it, we don't need to reinvent this wheel. I'm, I'm, I'm now wondering, like, has anyone done a, done a study comparing, like, you know, things like uh, Myers Briggs and like Enneagram personality tests, which which types um, that show up on those are are also like the most um, well suited to a cybersecurity role? Um, that was actually another thing that just someone that walked by came up and made a recommendation, like, "Oh, you guys should do a cyber psychology course." Which you know, 
is in itself, I think, like a fascinating, like you, you need someone with with a very particular background there. And there's there's a strong element of opinion that I think will come into play. Um, that doesn't strike me as a terribly well-defined field and skews closer to the academic side of it as well. But, you know, could be utterly fascinating too. It's interesting. This is not exactly related, but it makes me think of a book that I've read recently. And we'll we'll make sure to get those this posted down in the show notes for anybody that's interested um, in the description here. Um, it's a, a book called The Psychology of Intelligence Analysis. It's actually written for, um, you know, CIA type and analysts, um, but there's a whole lot of parallels there um, for what we do as cybersecurity professionals as well, um, and how that works, and how we have the why we have the biases that we have, and what makes you uniquely qualified in some respects to to do this kind of work. I, I think it really is an interesting one about you know how do we find the right people, and how does how does our human condition ultimately play into um, our success. Um, in, in cybersecurity at large. And I, I, you know, I'll say here too, um, you know, I wish we were joined today by somebody on the product team and I could throw the gauntlet down and say, well, let's go build that thing that does that. Oh, wait, wait. product manager was your title, right, Ned? Uh, no, you're thinking of someone else. <laughs> I'll go ahead and ticket that up internally and get that thrown on the roadmap. Um, it's something that we're going to go to work to do. And you know, as with all uh, technical projects, we'll expect that done in about two weeks, right? Yep, yep, that'll go well. Um, well no, we, we also have to cut it there because this is our our new you know bleeding edge product release, and and now we're we have some IP concerns uh, airing Uh-oh. this publicly. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> You know, that's one of those, all joking aside of me, me giving you a hard time here publicly in front of everybody, um, I would happily let any N number of people kind of take that gauntlet and see what, what can be done there. That's uh, as so many things in our space, there's so much to be done. Um, mm-hmm. There's plenty of problems set to go around. And, and when we solve them in different and unique ways, I think that's when we really win. And this is definitely one of those, in my opinions. We need lots of thought in areas like this. So. Ned, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming and giving us a little bit of a download on how InfoSecurity Europe went uh, for you and what your walking away points were. Glad to hear that there were actually people there in spite of all the you know, pandemic frustrations and concerns. And then I think more, more tangibly, the, the tube strike and the location this year was a little bit more remote. So maybe the organizers were kicking themselves a bit, but hard to foresee that. Um, I'm sure we'll have more interesting conversations and we'll have to have you on as um, new product features and new thoughts come your way um, and what that means here for cyber. Of course. I will say this was my first podcast. This went um, a lot better than I thought it would. Um, I'm not one uh, that <laughs> necessarily enjoys what I feel is public speaking, but this is, you know, this is affords me the illusion that it's not public speaking. Right? That's totally not. It's just, a, just an easy conversation between you and I. Yep. Thanks so much. Thanks, thanks everybody for joining. And we'll make sure to get that uh, book recommendation posted down in the show notes. And if anybody has any other, I've got a, a little bit of a reading list that kind of aligns to that. So if you're interested, post a comment and we'll see what we can send your way. Thanks so much, everybody. Cybrary, the premier cybersecurity skill development platform, is empowering individuals and teams to secure the future of technology. See why 3 million people have already signed up when you visit www.cybrary.it.